0: Welcome to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there is no excuse not to. I'm your host, Danny Kaler. Dan Bonner from ICC Chimney in St. Jerome, Quebec. Joel Edder, president of Northeast HPBA and also a senior wholesale account manager at Hearth and Home Technologies. Jess Kittle, and I now work for Laymans in Kidron, Ohio. Bart Ogden, Home Safe Hearth and Chimney, Wichita, Kansas. The Firetime Podcast, simply put, is a look into the future of hearth. It's a paradigm shift of thinking and doing that, for those who choose to implement the principles discussed, will launch themselves into a growth position in our industry.
1: And once again, I'm so excited to be here today. Welcome to episode 100 of the Firetime Podcast my mind is blown that we have made it to a hundred episodes. I'm thinking back to three and a half years ago when I sat down to record the first episode of the first podcast with Tim Rethlake from Hearthodome Technologies and thinking about, I wonder if anyone's going to listen to this. It's just crazy to think about the community that has been created and the ground that we've been able to cover. I was going back trying to you know, calculate how many hours worth of content we have. And it's, it's, it's crazy. The, the fact that you have all been so faithful to listen and to give feedback and to inform, I want to hear about this. Hey, I got a question about how this works in my business. Man, it is not taken for granted. And I am just floored to have the honor of hosting this show. I mentioned a couple episodes ago that hosting this show has profoundly changed my life and and I believe it is one of the more important decisions that that I have made. And I'm I'm thankful for every single one of you that I've been able to get to know. And even if we've never been able to meet the fact that you're listening to this and and finding value in it uh, blows me away and and I hope that we are able to meet and that uh and that you reach out and and say hi because I think it's a really important thing and a special thing that we're that we're doing here. So, being that this is the 100th episode, I hope that you enjoyed that introduction. Those are recordings that were sent in by a number of folks who have been in the podcast community and gotten value out of it. Going forward in today's episode, what we're going to do is I am actually going to read you the article that I wrote for the first Issue of the Fire Time magazine, and it is called The Journey how two retailers stumbled their way into a digital magazine. And this kind of recounts really the last five years of my life and the genesis of how the podcast started. But what I am doing is as I read it, I'm actually stopping to go off script and give you some commentary as to what was going on behind the scenes and just some takeaways that that I've had. And, and my hope is that you get tremendous value out of this and that as you hear this story, like, This is told through the lens of me and Grant, but this is our story. And I would imagine as you listen to this, that there are going to be moments where you resonate and say, I've been there before. I've faced that. This is what I did. And I hope that you can find yourself in this story and that this can give you the courage to keep going. Now, I mentioned this on Instagram, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, that I I promised I'd do it. So this is just a a great, ridiculous story that there is a podcast episode where we recorded an unbelievable interview. And I went to go back and edit it, and I realized that my audio was gone. The guest audio was there, but mine was gone. And I was thinking to myself, oh my gosh, like what are we gonna do? And what ended up happening is that if I put on my headphones and I cranked the volume like all the way to a hundred percent, I could barely hear myself through the guest's microphone. And so what I ended up doing is I ended up taking, I mean, a long time. I think this took like four hours or five hours. And I ended up listening on full blast to the phrase that I said. And then I would try to turn it down really quick before the guest started talking again. So I wouldn't blow my eardrums out and I would write down what I said. I'd listen back to it again for the inflection. And then I would record me saying what I said the same way to the best of my ability. And I would, splice it into the uh, audio and then I would have to do the same thing again and again and again and again and I've asked people what episode was it like this is today like you can go listen to it what episode was it and no one has guessed it thankfully and I'm just gonna tell you right now it is episode one with Tim Rethlake so he literally flew out to Seattle on one of his trips for HHT and we got this interview done in person and and I was not going to record it again. It was so perfect. So I, I mean, it'd been a couple months since we recorded it and I'm getting ready to edit it down. And I mean, it was, uh, really difficult and took forever, but the test that I used is I sent him an email and I was like, Hey, TR amazing conversation. Just wanted to send it to you just to see if you had any thoughts about, about the editing. Let me know what you think. I didn't tell him what I did and he listened to it. He wrote me back and he's like, Oh, Tim, am like amazing conversation. I'm really excited to, to hear it when it airs. And then I, I, I told him what went on, but I felt like, okay, that was the litmus test. If the guest himself didn't know, then uh, we're probably okay. But yeah, if you go back and listen to episode one, not in the intro, not in the outro, but in the interview, I am not in the room. I am <laughs> desperately trying to hear what i said write it down and then with the same timing and inflection uh do it so all that to say guys it is my joy to host this podcast at the end of the episode i want to give uh some shout outs to the the people that we that we featured earlier on and it means the world that you get value out of this i hope that you enjoy hearing about the journey that has created this special community The Journey, How Two Retailers Stumbled Their Way Into a Digital Magazine, by Tim Reed, with Grant Falco. The fear cannot be defeated. The fear will not go away. The fear is hardwired into us, for good reason. Now, you can paralyze yourself trying to make it go away. You can read everything, study everything, and be sure you're right, but that's exhausting. The other thing you can do is dance with it. You can dance with the fear and say, it's a compass. It's giving me a hint that I'm onto something and I'm doing something that might not work. We have to decide, are we constantly trying to get it just right down the center, which is boring and isn't going to get us anywhere? Or do we have the guts to say, this might not work, but I'm going to persistently, consistently and generously bring it forward. If you're asking for a guarantee, you're in the wrong line. Seth Godin. Now, we're at the very beginning of the article, and I'm already going off script because I think that it's really important to talk about that quote that's above. When I think about the journey of how the podcast came to be, my role in it, and honestly, how this community has formed, I think what we have in common is that we are dancing with fear. We're doing something that may not work. It might fail. And we're acknowledging the fact that, yeah, like fear is there. It's legitimate. I'm, I'm not saying that fear doesn't exist. But the choice that I have is I can I can give into the fear. I can cave to it and do nothing. Or I can say, oh, okay, that's an indicator that, that you know, I might be on to something. And what I found for myself in most cases is that when I start to feel that fear, which frankly is often... It's, it's something I try to listen to, to think, okay, this hasn't been done and and I might fail, but I'm going to give it a try. So I I hope that you find some inspiration in that. I I thought that it was really powerful. and, And that idea of dancing with fear versus succumbing to it has been very powerful for me. Okay. Let's get back to the script. If you're anything like me, you've always wanted to leave your mark in the world to do work that matters. We can't help it. This impulse was hardwired into our human nature at the moment of creation. For some of you reading this, you've always known the value of hard work. You've grown up in a business, come from a poor family, or had people rely on you for provision. And maybe a few of you had the natural sense of responsibility to put together a plan for your life. I never did. But the beauty is that focus, organization, Discipline and success can all be acquired with practice. There's no magic, no secret sauce outside of doing the work over and over and over again. Most people go through life stumbling blindly from paycheck to paycheck, wondering why some people have all the luck. But there are a few who stand up, look fear in the face, and risk failing so that they can do work that matters. If you're in the second group, I hope this article or podcast encourages you to persevere. If you're in the first group, I hope this inspires you to get started. You know, I'm going to go off script here again. The reason that I think that first paragraph is so important is because for me, I didn't come from a a business background necessarily. I didn't know how to boil water on a stovetop until I was 18. True story. I didn't get a job until I was out of high school and was frankly pretty lazy at it and left my own devices. I am not naturally an organized person. Sometimes people are surprised when they meet me to know that, but I'm not naturally very organized. It's something that through a lot of work and discipline and habits, and frankly, a lot of grace that other people have shown to me that I've been able to build. And I think it's important to realize like most people do go through life just blindly stumbling paycheck to paycheck. And it doesn't matter whether they make a ton of money or a little bit of money. They're just blindly going through life, wondering why, you know, all the other people have the luck, but there is something to look fear in the face, to stand up and to do something with purpose. And if you're someone that, that naturally has that sense of, of responsibility and business, you come from a, a pedigree my encouragement is, is to keep going. Don't take those gifts for granted, but if you're, you know, someone like I was, somebody who didn't naturally have a strong sense of business, wasn't mechanically inclined, didn't have a even a strong work ethic, you can grow those things. You just have to decide to get started. Okay, let's get back to the script. During the winter of 2016, I read an article in Hearth and Home magazine that really made me mad. It was a state of the industry piece that showcased dealer comments from across the country and everything sounded the same. Quote, I'm just holding on until I can retire. It isn't like it used to be. People need to stop believing what they read on the internet. End quote. And so on. As a response, I put together a presentation for our affiliate conference with the not so subtle title, The Way It Is, That was all about how things in our industry had never been better. And the potential for growth was enormous for companies who were willing to do things a little differently. Now that the day had come for me to present, I was really nervous. I'd never done this before. And I felt the fear in the back of my head reminding me of every reason that I wasn't qualified to speak. I nearly failed high school entirely. I dropped out of college three times. I played guitar in a failing punk band for a decade, and I got fired from Starbucks after just a couple of months. Looking out, I saw an intimidating group of people that I didn't want to look like an idiot in front of. Sure, I'd seen results in my own store, but was I really the person to tell them what to do? I'm going to go off script here. This was really powerful for me. This is dating back five years ago now, and reading hearth and home i i i love that magazine I, I read it consistently i was always wanting to know what the best practices were and, and what the best dealers were doing but i was really frustrated because the tone of a lot of the articles that was coming out was looking at things pessimistically it was you know all the comments oh, i'm holding on till i can retire it's not like it used to be and, and i was looking at this thinking like it's never been better and and in hindsight honestly the having titling a presentation the way it is is uh you know not only is it not subtle it's it's definitely on the arrogant side and, but i was really convinced that things actually were better than ever and in this moment i was terrified because i remember getting up to give this presentation i had never given a presentation before at least on, you know on, on this kind of a scale and i'm looking out in the audience at people who had trained me, invested in me. I'm looking out at my old boss and and people that I did not want to look stupid in front of. And I felt like this was a defining moment. I would have to step up to the plate and show that I actually believed the things that I was saying. As I, as I look at that list of reasons that I wasn't qualified to speak, for me, that has been a, a spot of insecurity that I have spent a lot of time trying to think about turning into an area of strength. So because of dropping out of college, because of almost failing high school, trying to go the other direction and think like, how can I become a learner? Right? Because in, in in the past in my life, I've not been faithful with the, the gifts and the opportunities I've been given. How can I change that now? Right? Like, yeah, I I don't have a pedigree in the industry. I, I played guitar in a failing punk band for a long time. And while That didn't directly qualify me to be in the fireplace industry. What it did was it helped me overcome the fear of putting myself out there. And the big takeaway that I would want you to have listening to this is there might be pieces of insecurity in your past that you feel guilt or shame about. But I would say that there are going to be things like the list that I just gave you for me that you can actually start to leverage into a strength. It doesn't mean that those things were good in and of themselves, but it means that you can learn from it. And I would guess that if you look back on your life, there are situations you've been in that have uniquely qualified you to be where you are now, and you can be grateful for that and actually start to lean into what you learned. So that was a big moment for me. We'll go back on script here. In the winter of 2018, Grant and I were standing in the R&D lab of Sherwood Industries in Victoria, British Columbia. Now, I had done some traveling in the past, but this was the first time that a company I didn't work for put me on an airplane, and it was a big deal to me. They brought me in with Grant and another dealer from the Pacific Northwest to show us what they'd been working on and how they would go to market. At the beginning of the day, we sat in the conference room looking at our names on the welcome board, and the owners of the company, two amazing guys named Sherbil Youssef and Stuart O'Connor, personally walked us through all their newest marketing materials. After that, we received a factory tour that ended with the crown jewel of any manufacturer, the R&D Lab. They showed us a product line that they'd been working on for months. It was on the verge of coming to market and had features that they felt like were ahead of anyone else in the industry. Then Stuart O'Connor looked at me and asked the million dollar question. So what do you think? I'm going to jump off script here. This was a moment where me and Grant really had to try to think about why we do things at a much bigger level than what we thought about before. In the past, when I had been to manufacturers and seen new products and someone would ask, what do you think? Or they'd ask my boss. Most often they asked my boss, hey, what do you think? And um, the answer was very often like, oh, those logs don't look good enough. Or, you know, we need to touch that flame up in the back of the fireplace. There was something along the lines of that. And, And that was... Kind of how how I looked at fireplaces for a long time. I was kind of trained to do that. When I'm asked what I think, well, I want to know. Okay, how many CFMs is the fan kit? Oh, you know what? Yeah, we need more detail in those logs. If we could get uh, the the decorative front to do this, it'd be it'd be better. I'm not saying that those things are not valid because they are, but that is looking at the fireplace from the inside out, and that's one of the problems in our industry we as as hearth experts and I'll, I'll throw myself in this like we most often think about fireplaces from the inside out when a customer thinks about the fireplace from the outside in and this was a moment for me that was one of the first times I was able to talk to a manufacturer holistically about where their products fit in the marketplace. And what was cool is I was fortunate enough at the time to be working for Fireside Home Solutions, and we had a really big new construction division. And I wasn't over that division, but I was very familiar with it and with the sales team. I was over our retail division. And from working on the new construction side and seeing the volume of traffic that that came in, I kind of stumbled upon this, and I'm sure people have before me, but it hit me like a ton of bricks right around this time that when we're selling a zero clearance fireplace, most of the time for most companies, they are replacing an existing zero clearance fireplace. So if that's the case, and we are going to be pulling a existing zero clearance fireplace out of the wall, we want to put something in that has the same framing width or less because if the framing width is bigger, now we gotta rip open an entire wall versus maybe just half of the wall. We need to redo the studs, we need to redo the headers, and it becomes a massive project that very often is beyond the scope of, of a lot of hearth retailers. Now in my company, because we did a lot of new construction work, for us on in new construction, it really almost didn't matter how big the fireplace was because the architect will just spec it in and the house will get built around it. But What I started to realize around that time is that for most Hearth retailers, their new construction book of business is less than, I mean, 5% of their total, maybe 10%, but for most retailers, even ones that do some high-end custom new construction work, it's less than 10% of their book of business. Most zero-clearance fireplaces that companies sell, I'm, I'm speculating, but based on everything I've seen, this is the truth. Most zero clearance fireplaces that companies sell are replacing an existing fireplace, right? Mr. and Mrs. Jones have a home that was built in the 80s or the 90s, and they have an existing old, you know, direct vent fireplace they want to replace. So, if we're doing that, why would we want to put in a product that's bigger, right? Like when someone comes in to buy an insert, we don't say to them, Oh, well, your fireplace is. 35 inches wide but if we knock down the entire thing and build a whole new brick fireplace from scratch we could build it to 48 inches and you could put in a huge insert we don't do that we work with the space that we have so this was all going through my mind around this time and what was really cool was that me and grant were able to have a great conversation with the folks at enviro about this idea of if most of the customers that you have operate with people who have existing homes and new construction is a small part of the business. It seems to me that it'd be really important to design a zero-clearance fireplace that frames out at 42 inches or less, so that way we're dealing with the same framing size. Now, there's other things with this too that have to do with a depth, that have to do with the fact a fireplace needs to be a top and a rear vent to be able to accommodate the prior model that was installed. And we were able to have an incredible conversation about that, but it was one of the first times I had been able to have a conversation with manufacturers at a high level about these ideas, and I walked away thinking, we are definitely on the right track with this, and that was a really big deal for us. Okay, let's go back to the script. Five months later, Grant and I were sitting in a bar at the Reagan International Airport in Washington, D.C., We just completed HPBA's Government Affairs Academy Intensive, and we're reflecting on how our lives had changed over the last three days. I'm going to go off script here real quick. If you have not been to the HPBA Government Affairs Academy, I mean, shame on you, like period, end of story. This is the leadership training academy of our industry. Okay, I'm going to go back to the script here. You see, both of us nearly didn't go. Making excuses like, I'm not going to be in front of people, I'm not going to do this kind of work, and I'm too busy to leave for three days. Besides, fighting for our industry was work that other people did. During the academy, we averaged about eight hours of classroom time each day, learning the ins and outs of how grassroots politics work. We read the entire Constitution, got grilled with hardball questions live and on camera as part of our media training, worked late into each evening with our group on a project that culminated in giving testimony at the United States Capitol, and spent the final day meeting with legislators on Capitol Hill to lobby for a major issue that our industry was facing, NSPS Step 2 Sell-Through, all in less than 72 hours. To say that we were exhausted was an understatement. As we talked, we thought that we saw Senator Jeff Merkley from Oregon, my state, walking right past us in the airport to stand in a nearby line. He was a key senator we had met with the previous day during our time on Capitol Hill, and here he was, a few feet away. One of the major themes of the academy was that leaders need to be ready to speak to legislators on the record at any place and any time because that moment may never come again. We each did a double take to confirm that it was him. It was. So with no preparation and no training wheels, we did exactly what you should do when you have nothing left in the tank and deserve to unplug. Excuse me, Senator Merkley? I'll go off script here. You know, this was something for me that was very foundational. You know, the idea that we'd just gone through all this training, and I mean, we literally see the senator that we just met with the day earlier just walking through the airport. And, you know, it would have been so easy just to say, oh, that's cool. We met with him yesterday. But what I... What I really took away from the Government Affairs Academy, I know, I know Grant did too, is you gotta seize the moment when you have it. And you don't know when that moment's gonna be, and you you don't know what the payoff is gonna be. You know, looking at this in hindsight, NSPS step two sell-through fell through and we lost that battle. But what we learned in in how to approach doing grassroots politics, how to talk to senators, I, I walked away very empowered. And I feel like I gained a skill set that I can use for the rest of my life, even though as an industry we ended up losing that battle. And so my, you know, thought for you is as you hear me tell that story of me and Grant's journey is that if if you have a moment, you know, for us, it was do I have the guts to go just tap this senator on the shoulder and say, excuse me, Senator Merkley, you know, as is I had to face that question with Grant, what are the moments for you? where time is of the essence. You might not get a second chance at this and you can either do nothing, which is easier, right? We're sitting there after three grueling days. We already did our work for God and country, right? You know, it's easy to say that sort of thing. It would have been easier to just hang out and have another beer and, and not do anything. But by going and intentionally having that conversation, number one, he was super gracious and we were able to have a, you know, a really good chat. But, Number two, it, it did something inside of me, and I believe that for you, pushing into those opportunities that may not come around again, and, and, and in the moment, right, when fight or flight hits, what are you going to do? I think that stepping up to the plate, facing the fear, um, is the right thing. Okay, let's go back to the script. Later that fall, I was sitting in the bonus room above my garage getting ready to click on a green button marked Publish on my computer. I had the idea for the Firetime podcast nearly a year earlier, but I didn't take action for a while. After all, who would want to listen to a podcast about fireplaces? With my monstrous investment of $40 for equipment and absolutely no experience recording or editing, was there any guarantee that this wouldn't sound like total garbage? While I was scheduling guests for the first season, people that I looked up to in the industry said that they wouldn't share their secrets of success and that I shouldn't either. An industry magazine said it sounded like I'd already found the best place to share my ideas, not their publication. A company president told me that I should stay focused on what mattered. I was working on some other projects at the time. Why get distracted with this? Now, I had started traveling that year to speak to different companies, and it was clear that the old-school, tight-fisted way of doing things was a tired empire that was crumbling before our eyes. I knew these principles could transform a business that was willing to listen because I'd seen it in my own retail stores. In addition, I was starting to get the sense that giving away what you had was a superpower, but I didn't fully believe it. Did I dare hit publish and give my secrets away to any competitors who wanted to listen? Did I have the stamina to keep this up week after week? Would anyone in the industry even listen to it? I'm going to go off script again and, and talk about this. Starting the podcast for me was, I believe one of the more important decisions that I've made in my life. And reading this back, it, it takes me right back to where I was. I remember the microphone. I remember sitting up in my bonus room. And earlier that year, I had written an article for the patio and hearth report. They were super gracious and they gave me an editorial spot. I had another industry magazine that had told me that, uh, you know, I wasn't the best fit for what they were trying to do with their publication. And I started thinking about this idea of their publication and and i had also taught a class at the hpb expo that year in nashville and right before that class i wrote a small ebook to give away to people in the course because my thought was like well listening to me for an hour is not going to do anything for anybody it's not going to change their business but if they could get this ebook that could really help and then i started thinking about it and i was like well yeah but that ebook they can read it but you know, it's going to be hard to week after week after week, stay up on it. And that was kind of when the idea for the podcast was, was really fully starting to form. And I realized that I personally had gotten so much inspiration from podcasts. There were, you know, multiple podcasts I was listening to at the time that week after week would give me inspiration, would give me courage and, and kind of stick to itiveness to get the things done that, that I knew were the most important. My hope was to do that for other people. And what was funny at at the time, thinking about it, I literally, I think for the first episode, I sent it to like, I don't know, four sales reps. Um, I had, you know, a a few people that signed up to get my ebook from the HPBA course. And and basically I just said like, hey, you know, here it is. Can you share it? And I knew that I wanted to do seasons rather than week to week, because that gets to be a, a big drag and going season by season kind of allows me to look at what we want to accomplish for the season, plan episodes and guests accordingly. And there's not pressure to always have to have a, another episode coming out. But all that to say, I'd looked at season one and I felt like who are people in the industry that I want the rest of the industry to know that are excellent at what they do, that are up and coming that have been doing it for a long time with absolute professionalism and that first season was really special to me i i felt like even if we don't come back for a second season this is a standalone project that i'm really proud of and you know it was so funny i mean like literally i had people that i really respected saying i'm not going to give away my secrets to success on the podcast and i kind of felt like wait like what's the secret to success like call people back when you say you will answer your email you know i mean like whatever it is like there, there are things we can do better, but like the basics are are really simple and it's going to be, you know, the story and the passion of what you bring to the table that folks are going to walk away with. And so that was just an interesting dynamic. And at, at the end of the day, I still felt like there's something here. I had been so impacted by podcasts to me. It was, it was a no brainer. And frankly too, I thought about like, if there is going to be a future of, new generation dealers and and if i want to work with businesses down the road well we have to have a community that is starting to 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 share what we do and you know the the podcast kind of uh kind of grew from there so it was really cool getting to start that and it's even funny just going back and reading this and thinking about it because there was so much unknown at the time and to be honest a part of me thought like what if my competitors down the street listen to this And what I just walked away with is, you know what, like good for them because if they can take this and it helps them, like it's honestly going to help our industry. Most of the sales that we lose are not to a competitor down the street. We lose to somebody not buying a fireplace at all. So if the competitor down the street is getting more people in their store, I guarantee that you are going to see a benefit from it. So we can talk more about that later. I'm going to jump back onto the script. In the spring of 2019, the HPB Expo was in Dallas, and I had forced, I mean uh, persuaded, Grant to give a presentation on growing your business through social media. He was terrified of public speaking, but he put together a presentation that ended up being really powerful. The podcast had been going really well. It had been downloaded a couple thousand times, and the word seemed to be spreading. As we walked around the trade show, people kept coming up to us and raving about how the podcast had been transforming their business. They couldn't believe it was so specific to our industry. Now, I'm going to go off script here for just a second, and this still blows my mind. One of my favorite things, and I know Grant's favorite things, is going to trade shows and being able to talk to business owners and, and service technicians and installers and salespeople. where this podcast and the community that it has created has actively helped them grow their business. For me, there is nothing that I take more joy in than being able to be a part of that transformation. And it was absolutely incredible. Even with the podcast just being downloaded a couple thousand times back then, it was incredible that so many people were impacted by it. And it was it for me is is uh it's an honor that I just I get to be a part of it. I'm gonna jump back onto the script here. Despite the buzz, we'd been trying in the weeks leading up to the show to get a manufacturer to host a live podcast in their booth, but no one had taken us up on it. Finally, just days before the show, Troy Olson, a sales rep for Napoleon in the Pacific Northwest, said that Napoleon's new co-CEO, Stephen Schroeder, was someone that we needed to meet. Troy also mentioned that Stephen would be a great guest to interview on the podcast. He gave me Stephen's cell phone number and said that Grant and I should reach out. We did, and Napoleon was gracious enough to let us record in their booth. The episode was great and ended up receiving a lot of attention throughout the rest of the trade show. Every night, we connected with people from all over the country at the Omni Dallas Sports Bar. And every night, the questions were the same. What are you and Grant going to do with all of this? I'm going to go off script here. So, This was a a really important time for us because it was when we really started to see the community that was forming. What was so cool about this event in Dallas is that it seemed like everybody congregated at this Omni Sports Bar. And it was amazing to see manufacturers from you know, different companies laughing with each other and talking. And me and Grant just felt like this is special. And to have different people, older, younger men, women, installers, service tech, salespeople, all these different people coming together because they had been using the podcast to be a springboard for how they were going to help transform their business was incredible. and and yeah, I mean, everyone was asking like, what are you going to do with this? And frankly, we didn't totally know. We knew that the community was going to be the most powerful part of anything that we did, right? Grant and I can can try to give good information and be facilitators, but honestly, the secret sauce is the community that does something with it. And what I'll say is I've traveled and gotten to know people from all over the US and Canada. I'm telling you, I learn more from the community than than anything I teach. I'm just, I'm telling you that. And as we kind of looked at this, we didn't know what we were going to do. We knew that the community was going to be the key and we wanted to find a way to take, you know, the community that this small podcast had created and take it to the next level. Now, before we jump back in, I I just want to say that this connection with Napoleon was really special. So Troy Olson connected me and Grant with Steven Schroeder and I have felt like that relationship has been tremendous and it's been funny and it hasn't really been a business relationship. I've never done like paid consulting with them. Um, at the time that this started, I wasn't one of their customers and and Grant wasn't either at the time, but we just felt a connection. Like this is a company that, that, believes in the work that we're doing and and they want to support it they've been incredibly gracious to help support the podcast and to um do what they can to help spread the message of the fire time network and all the above and i just want to say that we have really appreciated what Stephen and and the rest of the of the team at napoleon has done and troy for connecting us is is terrific okay i'm going to jump back on script Three months later, Grant and I flew to Minneapolis for the 2019 HHT Summer Summit. I've been asked to give a presentation about digital marketing, and Grant had been invited as one of the best dealers in the Pacific Northwest. The third season of the Firetime podcast was nearly over, and the growth had been explosive. Thousands and thousands of people had been downloading it all over North America, I'd been getting invited to speak all around the country and we just finished up an NSPS Facebook live event, which seemed to galvanize our industry around a central cause. Since Grant and I didn't get to see each other in person very often, we coordinated our flights and met at the Portland airport. Before we stepped on the plane, we were just two retailers having fun. When we got off, things were different. The first thing we did on the plane was discuss our momentum and what it meant. It was clear to us that even though we were in the minority, the regime of information dictators was falling and making room for something new, a new generation of leaders who share their best practices and sharpen each other to get better. I grabbed my notebook and started sketching. How was it that independently of each other, we'd been growing our businesses like crazy using a very similar set of strategies? It came down to a shared set of principles that are true of retail business in our industry, regardless of geography or demographic. We started with the eight departments of a successful retailer in hierarchical order. One, leadership. Two, sales. Three, installation. Four, service. Five, grounds and warehouse. Six, support staff. 7. Showroom. 8. Marketing. Next, we talked about the different tools we'd created to help run those parts of our business for us so that we could steer the ship rather than getting dragged underneath it. There were over 50 of them. After that, we argued about, I mean discussed, the top 5 for each topic that business leaders needed to understand. If they could understand how to think about their business in light of these departments, surround themselves with other leaders who were in it with them, and be willing to ask the hard questions about age-old presuppositions, they could take control of their business like never before. By the time the plane landed, we had a framework drawn up. But what were we going to do with it? I'm going to jump off script here. So that plane ride for me was powerful. I mean, everything that I just mentioned is we talked about these concepts of, okay, like these are in hierarchical order in your company leadership. It starts at the top. If, if you don't have yourself set up as a leader and other key leaders in your company, you're not gonna be able to do anything. Then we move to sales, right? Because we have to make sales to be able to have money and profit dollars and everything else. You go down the list and, and we walked away with a flow chart where you've got your different departments with your tools underneath each of them. And as we Throughout these different tools that each of us had, it was amazing how many of them stacked up from like, you know, an installation checklist sheet to a customer dashboard for your sales team to use to be following up. You know, you go down the list, a weekly report, a quick estimate tool. We just felt like this had been so powerful for us. And as we looked at it, coming up with a top five was really tough, but by the time that plane ride landed, we literally had kind of the brainchild of the FireTime Network, that there is a system that we'd found success in doing business that could be shared with other people. And it centered around the clarity of the different departments and then specific tools to run them. And And it was powerful. When we landed, I mean, we... Man... Like we hit it hard on that plane. I don't know how long the flight was probably four hours or so. And it was nonstop. I think we have some videos somewhere of, you know, us on a, on a roll and it was, it was really powerful. If I can find it, we'll put it in the show notes. All that to say, we didn't know exactly what we were going to do with it. Okay. Back on script. Six weeks after that, Grant and I met up in the airport in Salt Lake city. It was the beginning of August and Stephen Schroeder had invited us out to Barry, Ontario. The goal of the trip was to spend some time together and give their team insights from a dealer's point of view. Since we weren't Napoleon customers, we believed we could give them an unbiased perspective to help them grow their brand in new ways. Their facilities were impressive, and we realized right away that this company treated people like family, all the way down to the ketchup-flavored potato chips that greeted us when we arrived. We learned the Schroeder family's story and saw how intentional they'd been to groom Stephen and Chris for the roles of co-CEO when the time was right. As we walked through their facilities, more like a small city than anything else, we saw their efforts to innovate at every turn. Fireplaces, barbecues, furnaces, it didn't matter. If there was a better way to do it, they were going to find it. We filed back into a beautiful conference room, and their marketing team showed us how they'd been working to grow their presence across North America. We talked through digital marketing strategies, brochures, and sales messages, mostly from the perspective of what problems dealers had that Napoleon could solve. After that, their marketing team unveiled their newest initiative, something they'd been planning for months. Then. Just like Stuart at Sherwood Industries 18 months earlier, the marketing director looked at us and asked the magic question. What do you think about all of this? Okay, I'm going to go off script here. This was a moment for me that was really big. We talk a decent amount about marketing on this podcast, but one thing that I want to really hammer home here is that when it comes to marketing, I believe, and this isn't unique to me, this is based on a lot of people I've listened to and read, that, that the key to marketing is identifying your customer's problem and showing them a solution, but not stopping there. You show them a solution and then you paint a picture of what life is going to be like afterwards. And one of the things that we can sometimes lose sight of is we know our products too well. I I find this all the time. Like literally yesterday, I had a meeting on some advertising stuff for the 2022 marketing plan for the firetime magazine and how we're going to be talking to potential advertisers and things like that. And we're putting together this marketing piece. And as I looked at it, I realized, wait, we didn't explain what the advertising opportunities are, right? We talked about how good it was. We gave a high level overview of how much each different package cost but we didn't actually even define what was in the packages. And, you know, it was such a reminder that, that our default is to get, is to be too close to our product because we know it so well. And what was really special about this conversation that we have with the team in Berry working for Napoleon is that we were able to say, wait, 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 let's take a step back and let's think about if, if, if I'm your customer now, in this case, the, the, the marketing campaign was, was going after dealers. So if, if, I am your customer, which ironically Grant and I both were. What are the problems I have that you can solve for me? And as we talked about this, you know, you, we looked at it and we said, you know, you guys make some great fireplaces, but one of my problems is not that I need another fireplace that's 30,000 BTUs an hour. You know, one of my problems is not that I need a better looking decorative front or that I need a, a fireplace that that turns down, you know, 50% or 60%. Now, all those things are very important, but as a dealer, that's not one of my problems. I don't wake up at night thinking, oh my gosh, I just wish I had a fireplace they could turn down 50% or 60%, whatever it is. No, like I'm waking up at night thinking, okay, how do I train my team better? Is that if this gets back ordered again, what's gonna happen? What am I going to do about payroll this month? Like there's a lot of different things that dealers wake up thinking about and we should position our marketing to solve those problems. And our belief was that they actually could solve a lot of those problems for their dealers. So the reason I tell you that story is anytime you're having a marketing conversation, no matter how good it looks, no matter how creative it is, no matter how much you love the tagline, try to take a step back and separate yourself from your love for the product or the company and just try to ask objectively who is my customer and does this solve their problem like are they waking up at night with this problem and they're going to see this and go oh my gosh I can't believe I didn't know about this and I want my life to change in whatever way this can help it change I've got to take action now this is something that is a big deal and and I will tell you I am fighting this constantly with with the marketing initiatives that I'm a part of. So I don't think you ever graduate from this. You can gain the awareness to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Am I falling prey to the curse of knowledge? Am I falling prey to forgetting what it's like to see things from a customer perspective? But your default will always be to have tunnel vision. So it's really important to be able to have outside perspective. In this case, what was wise about what they did is they brought in people who were their target customers, but were not their customers. Seth Godin talks about this where he says like, if you were to do a focus group and say, Oh, Hey, you know, would you buy this fireplace for $3,000? You know, some random person might go, Oh yeah, I I totally would. And a lot of companies, you know, they'll do this at scale. And when enough people say that they would pay $3,000 for it, they'll go, okay, we're going to make that fireplace. But that's actually not real because there's there's so many emotions that go into that. They're not actually spending their own money. So it's like, yeah, I could tell you that. But the way that you find out is you get people to need a fireplace and say, hey, this costs $3,000. Do you want to buy it? And if they buy it, well, now you know that the product is worth $3,000. And if they won't, then you need to think about what you're going to do. That was really powerful for us. And my hope is that As you think about your marketing and and even your sales process, you're thinking about what problem does this solve for a customer? Am I offering them a clear solution that is going to make their life better? Okay, I'm going to jump back on script. At the beginning of 2020, back when Corona was simply a Mexican beer, I stumbled upon a digital platform that could host all of the content that Grant and I had documented on that plane ride to Minneapolis and Double is a private social media platform for our industry. We finally had a framework to build the FireTime network. Naturally, the HPB Expo in New Orleans, six weeks later, was the place that it needed to launch if it was going to gain any traction, but the platform needed more content first. Now, Grant and I had been traveling a lot and teaching courses in different parts of the country, but most of it wasn't documented, which meant that we only had a couple of usable courses. So, Being financially prudent, what do you do when you are launching a product that isn't monetized, is expensive to maintain, and is exactly what the industry needs right now? You hire a videographer, convince Grant to get on a plane, and then drive three hours at the crack of dawn to put on a free workshop in exchange for the participants agreeing not to sue you for publishing the videos on the internet. I'm going to go off script here. That's a completely true story of what we did. It was absolutely nuts. Okay, here we go. Back to the script. We documented two free courses that couldn't have turned out any better, delivering the perfect installation and winning more showroom sales. But now we had a new question. How do we get people to pay attention to this at the trade show? We decided to launch an all-out marketing assault that included the FireTime Network notebooks, lanyards, and yes, temporary tattoos. But the piece de resistance was going to be carpet bombing the trade show floor with, quote, make the expo great again, unquote, fire time network flyers. Truthfully, we never thought about who the flyers would offend. We just figured that piggybacking onto that explosive phrase would turn some heads and get people to sign up. What could go wrong? I'm going to go off script here. Now, what I just read is pretty much the story of my life in a nutshell. And it was so funny as, as we were talking about this timeline, right? How are we going to uh, make a splash, get people to sign up, see the value in what we're doing? We were, we were really trying to think about it. And we're like, well, we got to have giveaways, right? Lanyards and notebooks. Then like literally it hit me like a ton of bricks, temporary tattoos. And you'd think like, okay, why on earth would you do temporary tattoos? And for me, what I felt like is a couple things. Number one, it's visual. So if you're rocking a Fire Time Network temporary tattoo, people are going to see it, and it's something buzzworthy. Number two, it is creating a community of those who are in and those who are out. Right? If I if I'm willing to put this thing on me, like, hey, I'm in. Oh, and I see you with one. Oh, you're in too. We can start to talk about it now. People who are on the outside, we can invite them in by giving them temporary tattoos, by you know, preaching the quote unquote gospel of the Firetime magazine, but by creating a community where there is something exclusive. Hey, I've got this notebook, I've got this temporary tattoo. It was it was really powerful. But the genesis of it this goes back to playing in the punk rock band. Probably 15 years ago, my band was playing a music fest in the Pacific Northwest called Tom Fest. And it's a festival where there's a million bands playing, a bunch of stages, and everybody camps outside side for like three days it's burning hot and we had a set time at like you know 11 o'clock in the morning or something like that and we're trying to think about when we're a small band at this big festival how do we get people to come to our set well what we thought about is okay it's burning hot and people need water so we bought like hundreds and hundreds of water bottles and we relabeled Every single one with our band name, our set time, and then a drawing of a carrot, a giant carrot chasing a rabbit. Now, you'd think, why on earth would you do that? Well, it's because we happen to have a giant carrot suit. So, of course, we had the person in the giant carrot suit running around this music festival chasing people and handing out these water bottles. And the whole thing, if you think about what we did at the expo with the, you know, temporary tattoos. And then frankly, like the, the make the expo great again flyers is we were trying to figure out how do we turn heads and create buzz. Now, looking back at that time, it's so funny. We uh, definitely had to ask for some forgiveness for the splash that was made. But I think that what, what saved us from getting in too much trouble was that, you know, I think our hearts were in a good place. Like we really are just trying to make the industry better and help companies. And, you know, you could argue with whether or not you thought the tactics were the best, but that was, uh, it's just funny that that was literally all inspired by playing a music festival 15 years earlier with a uh, giant carrot chasing people and handing out water bottles. (laughs) Let's get back to the script. Four days after the flyer drop at the trade show, we came home to a different world. COVID 19 had struck and was wreaking havoc on businesses everywhere. Grant and I had both been through the downturn of 2008, but that devastation happened over 24 months. This happened in less than two weeks. A few days earlier at the HPB Expo, we'd hosted a meetup for listeners of the Firetime podcast. It was like a family reunion with 50 people who had never met each other before. We stuffed ourselves into the bar of the Riverside Hilton in New Orleans and heard story after story about how people first heard about the podcast, how it was helping them grow their business, and most importantly, how it had let them know that they were not alone. This was special. It was clear that these leaders were the people who would move our industry forward in the future, but there was no way they could do it in isolation. I'm going to jump off script here real quick and just say that that podcast meetup was incredible. There's no way I can mention everybody who was there, but I'm thinking about like Dan Bonner and the team from ICC chimney, Pete Schoenfeld thinking about Ryan Blake and her team from chimney techniques. I mean, we had folks from all over the country, like Bart Ogden from home safe hearth and chimney in Wichita, Kansas. It was just incredible to see such camaraderie and people who never had met connecting because they'd they been part of the podcast community from afar. And it was like, Oh my gosh, like I listened to this episode and here's what I started doing. And this is how it works for me. What are you doing with this? It was honestly amazing to be part of it and very special. I can't wait for the next meetup. Okay. Back to the script. I quit my job at the end of March, something I'd been planning with my previous company for a while and was set up to fly to 20 different States for a consulting and speaking tour to launch my new business everything got canceled. Suddenly, I had some extra time on my hands. Grand and I had decided to start producing webinars for the industry. So, of course, I had to build a studio at my house in eight days. The first was a free course called COVID-19 Digital Sales Plan. And it was all about how to shift a brick-and-mortar business to digital in light of the shutdowns happening everywhere. This took off like wildfire. Grant and I were asked to present this content for different groups in various formats, and it launched into us hosting a webinar series on the building blocks of running a profitable business during a crisis, in-home sales models, converting to a digital presence, retaining team members, sales tracking and follow-up, and building compensation plans that work. We didn't make much money from the webinars, not exactly a surprise, when the first one was free and all of the others said, quote, if money is an issue for your business, please reach out to us and we'll figure it out, end quote. But we knew that we were onto something. To take it one step further, we started a weekly speakeasy video call so that people across North America could connect and see that we were all in this together. As we talked week after week, we found that most businesses struggled with the same set of problems, the absence of essential systems, the lack of sales processes, and the need for warehouse organization for starters. These were the exact issues we had faced in our own businesses, but we'd been able to overcome them by building a business framework and a suite of tools to work ourselves out of jobs over and over again. We knew this is powerful. And if we could just get into a business for a few days, a quick blitz trip, we could help lay groundwork that would pay off for years. But doing it would absolutely change the presuppositions and status quo of any company, not to mention be really expensive. Would people trust us enough to do this during the pandemic? I'm going to jump off script here. This, This initial time during COVID for me was really special. And I say that knowing the hardship that the pandemic has caused, and I I don't want to undercut that. What I'll say, though, for me is that during that time, we saw resilience like we'd never seen before. We saw companies rising to the occasion to help their community to be there for them to try to navigate like how do we do this safely but also like if my business doesn't make money i can't pay my people they're not going to have health insurance their their kids are you know not going to have food and all those complex realities were coming together and that time of doing webinars i think there was one time where I, i did like 20 webinars in I don't know what it was. It was like five weeks or something like that. Maybe it was even less than that. It it was was crazy. But that was a really special time where you could feel people across the country coming together. And those speakeasy calls were really special because it was just dealers from all over the place jumping in to say, hey, here's what's going on for me. This is working. Why don't you try this? And we felt like we could harness that into this idea of a blitz trip. And the cool thing was that even during the pandemic, which was crazy because travel was tough you know, at the time that me and Grant started doing this, most companies that we were talking to had been shut down. Revenue had kind of ground to a halt and they chose to make an investment in us to come out. And it was, it was incredible. We spent some time with a business in Cincinnati and one in Lexington, Kentucky in particular that I'm thinking of. And it was really, really powerful. And I think that the shock of the pandemic, it, it put everyone in a position to say, okay, It's time to change. I can't rest on my laurels. I don't know what the future holds. Now is the time to change. And sometimes it might take a pandemic to do that. But in the same way that we were talking about taking a look at fear and doing something that may not work at the beginning of this article, looking at your business from this new perspective, not resting on your laurels and pushing into the change that you know is right. Like, man, take advantage of that when the time comes. Okay, back to the script. On August 29th, 2020, Grant and I were driving through Northern Kentucky on Highway 75, reflecting on the last week. We just completed back-to-back blitz trips in Cincinnati and Lexington, and were amazed at the ground we'd been able to cover. Both businesses were able to make real changes that would pay off in spades. As I write this in hindsight, they have, big time. As we drove, we talked about the fact that businesses all over the place have these same problems, but many aren't in a position to bring us out personally. This sparked two ideas. The first was that we should host in-person workshops a few times each year in different parts of the country. Dealers could come in for about a third of the price to bring us out, learn the same content that we presented on our blitz trips, create a specific plan for their businesses, and walk out with a roadmap to follow for the next two years. Best of all, we could create cohorts of non-competitive businesses to continue to meet, both digitally and in person, after the workshop, and coach them as needed. The second idea was to start a digital magazine. I'd floated the idea of a digital magazine before, and Grant thought I was crazy at first. But thinking about it, we were already generating written content, videos, and podcasts Thanks to the relationships we built through our speaking engagements and industry connections, we could build a team of contributors that would produce better content than anything else our industry had seen. And the icing on the cake was that we could build on the firetime network audience that already existed. I started working on business models for both ideas, identifying cities and venues for the workshops and researching the ins and outs of a digital magazine. After reviewing it all, we decided that in-person workshops had the most equity and that we would launch a digital magazine along with a book in 2022. You know what they say about making plans, right? I'm going to jump off script here and you might be reading this thinking like, oh wow, so like, You know, that was the genesis of the Firetime Workshop, which, Lord willing, we're going to be, you know, putting on here in 2022. And it's funny that that actually was the genesis of the Firetime Workshop. And we had the idea for both the magazine and the workshop at the same time. And we looked at both of them. We said no to the magazine in-person workshops was the way to go. And we put the digital magazine and the book on the back burner for two years, right? At the time we were talking about this, it was 2020. So we said, nope, that's a project two years down the road. Well, it's funny what happens now. Okay, back to the script. Less than two weeks later, we received the same email that blindsided everyone in the industry. Quote, after 40 years and 480 issues, Village West Publishing slash hearth and home is no longer, end quote. I called Grant and told him that we needed to do this. We already had the business model. We had the content. We had the connections. And our industry needed it right now. So we threw everything we had into building out a launch. Which platforms could we use for publishing? How would advertising work? How would the framework for completing each issue look? Who would be on the team? I started making phone calls around the industry to check the temperature of advertising interest, and I also contacted the HPBA to see if this project would have their blessing. The responses were overwhelmingly positive. Our industry needed this, and the time to act was now. We worked separately on this due diligence for a couple of weeks before scheduling a Zoom call to discuss what we found. After talking through everything, I asked Grant, where's the line in the sand? The one that once we cross it, we're committed and there's no going back. He looked at me and said, I think we've already crossed it. Now, that's the end of the article and I hope that that helped you understand the genesis and ethos of the Firetime podcast community. If I were to give you a, Parting word before we move to the outro of the episode. It's this. If I were to tell you five years ago when I was able to give that first presentation to the local affiliate in Oregon where I live, what things would look like now, I would have had no idea. No idea. But I think that the secret sauce of what has happened is that as, as me and Grant have had these situations we didn't look at them as isolated incidents. We always looked on how does this build onto this, right? So, you know, how does speaking at this thing five years ago build into talking at Expo? And then, oh, okay, we got invited to come out to Sherwood Industries, but it's not just to look at their product and tell them it looks good. Like we can actually capitalize on the speaking engagement content and then on what we talked about at Expo and, you know, move into what's next. And I think that, When you go through life, go into it with your eyes open. When a situation comes your way, don't look at it as an isolated event. Like, oh man, I got punched in the face. Like, what am I going to do here? Or, oh, that was a cool opportunity. That was a nice trip. That was a good bonus. Like, whatever it is. Look at things holistically. How does that build momentum for what's next? How does that tie to this? Oh, wait a minute. Okay, that experience that we had at Sherwood Industries five years ago. Okay, how does that tie into what's next here? Oh, the HPBA Government Affairs Academy. Okay, that was actually tied to some of the things on the Napoleon trip that that came out. All of that to say, I believe that there's a plan for the way that life is connected. And it would be wise for us to open our eyes and look holistically at that. The other thing I'll say is if I was to evaluate my journey over the last five years, I would say that we are in the middle of a five-year dip and we're not out on the other side. So you've probably heard me talk about the dip before. There's a, a book by Seth Godin called The Dip that is incredible. It You can get the audio book and listen to it in an hour and a half. It's really short. But essentially, in the dip, he talks about any work that's worth doing has a dip to it, right? So, if you want to go to medical school to become a doctor, there's a huge celebration when you get accepted, right? That's amazing. But then there's a dip. I mean, you got to grunt through what, like four to five years of intense study, and then you got to be uh, an intern. And you have to, I mean, go for a long, long time sacrificing sleep and social life and money and all these things to try and eventually become a doctor. And when you're in that dip, that five-year, eight-year dip, no one's celebrating your success. No one cares if you're going to finish or not. It's it's up to you to ask the question, do I have what it takes to finish what I started? And I think a lot about like, you know, in the New Testament, when Jesus talks about counting the cost, that that's really important. Like if we're going to do something, we should count the cost. If if we're going to quit, let's quit at the beginning before the dip, right? So like, you know what? I actually don't want to go to medical school. That's a great time to quit or quit afterwards, right? So like you've gone through it, you've got this amazing experience, you've been changed, you've been transformed and you can say, you know what? I'm thankful for the gift that medical school's given me. But I'm going to go do something else. The best time to quit is before or after the dip. It's not in the middle. It's a fool that quits in the middle, right? An example I've heard is that if you want to learn how to snowboard, so you buy all the gear and you go down the mountain, you start falling and you hurt yourself, that's the dumbest time to quit because you've invested time and money and resources and you're frustrated. You haven't mastered it. The time to quit is before or after. So my word to you is this. I believe you know I'm still in the middle of a dip that started five years ago. And I have been trying to grow in relishing in the fact that, Hey, it's okay to get punched in the face a little bit. And when you just got to keep moving and keep moving and keep moving, there is something to that idea of just March a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And over time, there is a library effect to that marching where all of a sudden it's not a one-off disconnected event now it's a book on the shelf and then another book on the shelf and another book on the shelf and pretty soon you've got a library. So as we round out here, I hope that like we said at the beginning of the article, if you're on the journey, if you're in the dip, keep going. That 20 mile march, just 20 miles today, 20 miles tomorrow, 20 miles the next day, even if you could do 30, even if you only want to do 10, do 20 every single day. That is how you push through the dip. And you can get through it. I believe it. I believe you can get through the dip. And you can look back and say, that was special. And I'm thankful for what it taught me. And now if I want to quit, I can. But it's not the time to do it when you're in the dip. If you are listening to this and thinking, I am not putting myself out there. I don't know if I'm doing work that matters. I don't know if I'm making a difference. My hope is that this inspires you to start. Well, we did it. 100 episodes in, and my hope is that you got value out of listening to the story of the journey. While that story was told through my eyes, and it kind of recounts what brought me and Grant to this point, I think that this is a story that we're all living together. And the fact that the podcast is here after 100 episodes just blows my mind i literally as i record this just got done editing what i'm about to play for you and i don't know what to say it's it's unbelievable just to to think that this community has been created from from nothing just a few years ago so in closing my hope like i just mentioned is that if you are in the middle of a dip you will continue to push If you are not finding yourself in a dip, it might be worth asking the question, what do I need to push into that hasn't been done? What kind of work is going to matter is going to be a blessing for somebody and, you know, count the cost, but jump in. I believe that right now in this world, there are a lot of people afraid to put themselves on the hook for others. And we need a lot more of that. I think that for those of you listening to this podcast, there's something inside of you that wants more, that wants to do better, and that is interested in creating a better world. I know that I certainly am. As we round out here, I, I want to play for you some audio recordings that were sent to me from folks who are part of the community that have been uh, impacted themselves and in their businesses through the podcast, and it just it floors me to hear this, but I especially want to thank the people who you heard in the introduction today, Danny Kaler, Joel Etter, Bart Ogden, Jess Kittle, and Dan Bonner. That was just awesome for me to put together. And in addition, I mean, everybody that helps support this podcast on, on Patreon, whether you contribute a little bit or something more substantial, We do not take it for granted and it means the world that you are interested in helping to support this podcast to everybody that I have met on the road that has made a comment about listening to the podcast or reading the fire time magazine, you know, to anybody who's emailed in a question for the Q and a episodes and to anybody who has gotten value out of this where we've never met, you know, the work that you do matters and you are part of something bigger than yourselves. As we go out here and I, I play this clip, you know, I, I, re- I really don't know what to say. I, I don't have any words. And it, it just means a lot that you are, you know, continuing to be here. And as I face dips in my own life, these are the things that keep me going. So thank you. I just want to give a shout out. What a blessing it has been to uh, myself personally and our business as well to really move the needle. And uh, we've really taken a lot of uh, what's been said in the podcast and applied it. um, And it has shown great growth for us.
0: My name is Jess Kittle and I now work for Layman's in Kidron, Ohio. I really appreciate how Tim and Grant have come to the aid of our industry by standing in the gap during these uncertain times. FireTime has kept us motivated, informed, and focused in this challenging industry that we all love. Hi, this is Joel Edder. I am president of Northeast HPBA. I'm also a senior wholesale account manager at Hearth and Home Technologies. Just wanted to take this time to thank Tim for picking up the mantle and keeping us all informed in our industry. This is Dan Bonner from ICC Chimney in St. Jerome, Quebec. And I want to congratulate FireTime Network for reaching their 100th podcast. You know, the podcast for ICC has been kind of an interesting thing because every time a podcast comes out, we tend to discuss it at our sales meetings. And it gives us a bit of an insight into how our customers are doing. You know, at the, at the manufacturer level, sometimes th- we see things from 10,000 feet. And looking into the inside of everyday issues that are affecting dealers, business, how things are going give us something to really hit the road with. So our team kind of talks about the podcasts. And like I say, it, it helps us to better understand what our customers are facing and ask the right kinds of questions. How can we help? What can we do better? So from the sales team at ICC, uh, we really appreciate it. On a more personal level, I just love how inspirational and positive they tend to be. You know, whether we're talking about a negative thing, oftentimes, you know, we're talking about issues that are facing the industry. It almost always ends positively, and there's always a solution that we can look forward to. So just from that tone, I think, is a, a real indicator of uh, the positive sense of how things are going and, um, and why the podcast has been so successful.
1: Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. To learn more, visit the website itsfiretime.com. Music from this episode was written and recorded by In Bloom out of Portland, Oregon. We thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. We'll see you next time. All in to burn.